So two of the most important items that we carry with us every day are our wallet and our keys, right? Now, there's a few of them. We can be honest in here. It's a small group. How many of you have truly lost one of those things? Okay, and by, here's what I mean by lost. I don't mean I misplaced it and found it an hour later, but I mean they're gone, right? Show of hands. Okay, good. I had to start there to make sure I have some solidarity. Um, now, now, be honest. How many of you have lost both of those things before? <laughs> Just me and Clint. <laughs> All right. So. I've lost both my keys uh, and my wallet, nowhere to be found again, completely gone. And those of you who know this experience, uh, you, you know the feeling when that happens, right? Especially if you don't have a spare key. The, the anxiety sets in, you start tearing apart the, the house, the car, the office, you retrace your steps. And, and the reason that's so important is because life really, can, really can't move forward as we know it without these things, can they? Now, I understand in the big picture, life goes on, right? But when you lose your keys, what's on that key ring? Access to transportation, to your house, to, to whatever else is, is valuable to you. When you lose your wallet, you have your money there. That's how you buy food. That's how you purchase things. You have your identification. That's how you can drive legally and do all these sorts of, of things. And so there's this sense of anxiety because you start thinking, Oh man, I'm going to have to cancel all the cards. I'm going to have to replace the keys. How can life move forward normally as it's supposed to without these things? Well, in, in these few moments this morning, we're, we're jumping into Exodus 33. And we're, we're seeing God's people Israel, they're about to lose something that they can't function properly without. Now we'll see that they can go on, but they can't function properly as God intended. As a, as a result of their idolatry, which is chapter 32, they're on the verge of losing God's presence on their journey. And we're, we're jumping in the middle of a book. And so just let me, give me 30 seconds to do like, you know, when you're watching a show you like, it's like previously on The Mandalorian. And it brings you up to speed, right? We're going to do previously in the book of Exodus to get some, some context on this giant story and where we are in chapter 33 and then apply it to our prayer lives, right? So Exodus begins with God's people enslaved in Egypt. God chooses a man named Moses through whom he, he's going to deliver his people from this Egyptian captivity, that they may be with God in worship. That's the purpose of their deliverance. God miraculously accomplishes this deliverance uh, through these ten plagues against Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. He delivers them, and he is present. He's going before his people along this journey out of captivity into the land that God has promised to them. Exodus 13 21 describes this presence. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. They had this visual representation of God's presence before them as they're being led. Then he gives his people the law through Moses. That's summed up in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And afterwards, uh, after the giving of the law and the covenant is confirmed, this relationship is confirmed with the people through a meal. 
through God's presence. Exodus 24, 11 says, They behold, beheld God and ate and drank. Then God gives his people instructions for the tabernacle that's going to be built. And that word tabernacle means dwelling place. In that very quick overview, I hope you hear the constant theme in Exodus. God's presence with his people. You hear that? God desires to dwell with his people. Then something happens to jeopardize all of that. And that's chapter 32, right before our chapter this morning. While Moses is on the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, hearing from the Lord, the people grow impatient. And so they tell Aaron, Moses' brother, who was in charge, it's like you had one job, Aaron. And they, they tell him in Exodus 32, 1, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land, we don't know what's become of him. So they've decided we don't want to worship God anymore. We can't wait for this guy. We don't know where he is. So Aaron, make us gods. And then under Aaron's leadership, they gather all of this gold and they they fashion this golden calf and they begin sacrificing to it and worshiping this golden calf. And God responds in righteous anger and judgment. And chapter 32 ends with Moses pleading for God's grace and presence for this people. Now, God does spare most of the people. There is judgment, but he does not wipe the entire uh, people out. But he does tell Moses at the end of chapter 32, Behold, my angel shall go before you. In other words, God says, You can journey on, my people will journey on, but my presence will no longer be with you. And that brings us to chapter 33, where we see the people of God recognize their sin, they, they mourn this, and Moses intercedes in prayer on behalf of the people. And as, as we look at this passage briefly this morning, we're, what I want us to do is be challenged in our own prayer life and, and given a guide through this story in, in Moses' prayer to help us in our own pursuit of God's presence. And after all, that is the, pers- the purpose, the essence of prayer. Pursuing not what God can give, but God's presence, God himself. And so as we walk through this, we're going to see three things for us here. The posture of prayer, the plea of prayer, and the provision in prayer. The posture, the plea, and the provision. So let's jump in. First we see the posture of prayer. And the posture is humility and repentance. Look at 33, if you have your Bibles in front of you, look at 33 verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you, on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Their response, verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know 
what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The posture of prayer is humility and repentance. Notice these people were so broken by their sin and the threat of loss of God's presence that they mourned. They're heartbroken over what they did. And notice it wasn't just words. There was action put to these words. They put off their ornaments, their jewelry. Now, most commentators agree that whatever these ornaments were, this, this was likely a part of the idol worship of the golden calf in chapter 32. So as they do this, they are literally stripping themselves of their idolatry because they realize that in their sinfulness they can't stand before the presence of God. And what's more is Moses tells us that they worshipped God. So they mourned over their broken condition. They worshipped God. Verse 7 goes on. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now listen to this. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Now, so when you put all of this together, you see a mourning over sin, and you see a return to worshiping of God. You see, Moses was the mediator between God and his people. So when the people stand up and they keep their faces set on Moses, they're looking to the one who brings them access to the presence of God. Do you see that? That's true repentance. They're no longer looking at the golden calf. Because their false god was crushed up and put in water. Now they're looking again to worship God in true repentance. They've turned from their idolatry and they're looking again to God. Friends, when we approach God in prayer, we must be ever aware of the fact that we are sinners in need of grace. We are idolaters who our hearts have drifted towards valuing something else other than God. And so we must start with a posture of humility and contrition and repentance when we approach God in prayer. I don't know about you, but for me, the temptation when it comes to prayer is to, to put the cart before the horse and start thinking about mechanics, right? How do I pray? Should I use a journal? What's the best book on prayer? How many times a day do I pray? All of these things, all of those are great questions, those great mechanical questions. But foremost, the question for us is what is the posture of our heart before God? That is the most important question. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, when we know that we're sinners, and He is holy, we'll approach Him with humble reverence. If the posture of our heart is, is that we deserve to be in His presence, or that He owes us something, our prayers will tend to be cheap and self-centered instead of rich and God-centered, we won't be drawn in to pray in the first place. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5, 3 through 4. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Israelites are here. They're poor in spirit after they recognize their sin. 
Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so as we consider this, this mourning posture of the Israelites also, let's take Jesus' words and turn those into questions for our own hearts. Do I have a poverty of spirit when I approach God? Meaning I know I can't rely on myself to stand in God's presence, to live the life he's called me to live. Or am I self-reliant? Do I, do I mourn over my sin and the sin around me so much that I cry out to God for his grace? Or do I view sin sort of with flippancy and apathy? Right? The posture of prayer is humble repentance. That's how we're to approach God. Second, we see the plea of prayer. And this is where Moses prays to God on behalf of the people. Verse 11 says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up the people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Verse 15, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Now, note that God has already extended grace to these people. He's, he's relented from full judgment. He hasn't wiped them out. And not only has he let them live, but think about what he's promising here. God is saying, I'm going to send an angel, and this angel is going to protect you, and he is going to give you victory over all your enemies. He's never going to leave you, and he's going to bring you into the promised land. But because of your sinfulness, the one thing that is not going to go with you is my presence. Now, let's be honest. At face value, that sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? We're meant to ask ourselves here, would we take an offer like that? If God said, listen, you can have a life of success, victory, power, great relationships, growing family, security, protection from harm, but the only thing you can have is my presence, would you take that offer? Moses hears that offer and he says, no deal. Absolutely not. Are you, are you kidding me, God? If we have... All of these things, but we don't have you, we have nothing. You see Moses' logic here? Verse 15, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, I can't go on without your presence. Your people can't go on without your presence. Think about what this means for our prayer life. The primary goal is not to get something from God, but to get God himself. What's life without an intimate, growing relationship with God? It's fine to pray for things. We're going to do that in a moment. But the most important thing is that we plead for God's presence, a growing relationship with the God of the universe. And for Moses to carry on without that is, is just as absurd as losing your car keys and being like, you know what, we'll just push the car around town, right? It's still a good car. No, the car won't work properly without the keys. You can't push it around town. And the Christian life will not function properly without an ongoing engagement with God's presence. Yet often we show how apathetic we are about that in our prayerlessness. 
And notice here also how Moses prays. He prays boldly the promises of God back to God. Verse 12, you said bring these people up, God. Verse 13, consider that these are your people. God, you you said that I've found favor in your sight. Moses shows us here the way we properly pray to God is to pray his word back to him, right? His, His praying is informed by God's word. Just a practical tip for us. If you're stuck in your prayer life, Pray God's word. Take take the Psalms for start. They they are meant to be prayed. It is a prayer book. Read a line. Personalize it to your own life. Pray it to God. In doing this, you can rest assured that you're praying God's will because it's his word. And you're teaching yourself to pray and to seek God's presence. To plead for God's presence. Tim Keller writes, prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory. The intimacy of finding his grace and the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. That's the goal of it all. So we should ask ourselves, is that true of us? Is the spiritual reality of God's presence the goal of our prayer life? Then number three, we see the provision in prayer. So first, we have the posture of prayer, humility and repentance. Two, the plea of prayer, which is God's presence. And third, the provision in prayer, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, he says, my presence will go with you, and I will give, or verse 14, rather, I will give you rest. And then in verse 17, this very thing you've spoken, I will do for you, Moses, have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So this is good news. God answers Moses' prayer. He he, he agrees to go with his people. He's going to stay with them. But it's not because of the people. It's because of their their mediator and their intercessor, Moses, who found favor with God. I hope you see that here. Likewise, here's the Christ connection. The only way you and I could be restored to the presence of God is through the true and greater Moses, Jesus Christ, our intercessor, Moses our mediator. Friends, I don't know about you, but I lose this awe. It should shock us with awe and wonder that we, sinful people, can approach the holy God of the universe as our Father. The fact that I can right now, that we can gather together and talk to God, is shocking. How does that happen? Not because of anything in us. We can't stand in his presence, but because of our mediator, we look to our mediator, Jesus Christ, who represents us before God. See, Christ lived a life we can never live. He never committed idolatry. He always found joy in God's presence so that he could be our perfect payment for sin. So think about this in Exodus 33. As Moses marched outside of the camp to be in God's presence for the people, so Jesus marched outside of Jerusalem to die on Calvary. As Moses found favor with God, the death and resurrection of Jesus was an acceptable payment for our sins. It was accepted by God so that we who believe now have the righteousness of Christ and access to the God of the universe. We're not just saved, we're drawn into a relationship. So a a rich prayer life has to be a cross-centered prayer life. We must always have the work of Christ in our minds, in our hearts, when we pray. If not, we'll be less inclined to come to him, won't we? Either we'll be fearful because we don't see our sins as forgiven, or we'll be apathetic because we don't see our need for forgiveness. 
But if we meditate on the work of Christ, the provision for us, we will be drawn in to prayer. So then, with a, with a posture of humble repentance, pleading for God's presence, and our hearts gripped by the provision of Jesus' work, let's do what Hebrews 4.16 says, which is, let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together.